If you have a copy of the Bible, uh, please find it, grab a hold of it, and find the letter to, of James. Use your table of contents if you have to, but please find James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. So this part of the Bible is very close to the maps in my Bible. In fact, it's about 30 pages from the end. So now, if you were not with us last week for our worship service, we're glad you've jumped in this week. And you should know that we've just begun a series of sermons going through the book of James. And last week was the first week. We covered the first four verses. And where we're told in those passages, those verses, don't settle for mediocrity. When it comes to your spiritual life, don't settle for just getting by. The most valuable thing in the world, no matter who you are, no matter how old or young or rich or poor, the single most valuable thing in the world for every single one of us is a mature and complete faith. A relationship with God that's deep and lacking in nothing. And you can have that. You really can. Don't settle for being a mediocre Christian. You do not have to be agnostic on the things of God. You can be more than a seeker. You can know God. So wherever you are, when it comes to Jesus Christ, don't settle for where you've landed. Don't settle for how far you've gotten this far. Rise up. You can have more. You can experience the depth of a true and mature relationship with God. All of us, every single one of us can grow. We can still mature in the Christian life. There's more. There really is more, and it's worth pursuing. And we saw last week that doing that, pursuing a mature relationship with God, becoming a mature Christian, a whole person, a complete person, one of the basic keys to that happening is going through stress and tough times in a particular way. In other words, growing up as a Christian, developing a relationship with God that's deep, this depends on choosing to look at the bad things in your life in a particular way. That's what we saw last week in James chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Now, this week, we come to verses 5 through 8. Last week, we saw that stress and tough times and difficulties, the trials of life, they give us the opportunity to grow in our faith. Whether that trial is sickness or tough financial times or a broken relationship with a child or a parent or a friend or a coworker, all of these are trials and they give us the opportunity to develop the single most valuable thing in the world for every single one of us. But here's the catch. When you're going through something that's really difficult, when you desperately long for a relationship that you don't have, or you're facing the distress of depression, or, or things have happened in your past that have left deep scars on you. When we suffer, one of the things that happens is we don't know what to do. 
We, we've done things to ourselves or to others and we're haunted by what we've done and we can't figure out how to fix it or how to move on or how to get over it or how to, how to forget it. When you have long-term and serious health issues and you have no idea what to do, you just can't figure out which way is up. One of the things that often happens with suffering is that we can't figure a way forward. Here's an example. As many of you know, I'm married. My wife's name is Janelle, and we have five children, and four of them are teenagers. Uh, We have an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, 15-year-old, 13-year-old, and we have an 11-year-old. By the way, happy Mother's Day, Janelle, and all of the other mothers out there. And good morning, kids. Uh, I can't see you, but... I can imagine that you're all around the dining room table dressed as you have been all the other weeks in your pajamas as we do in this strange time of coronavirus. Now, look, being the parent of a teenager is difficult. And I, for one, oftentimes am laying in bed at night saying to my wife, I don't know what to do. And look, it's not just you, my particular kids, I promise There are many worse children than you. No, I'm joking. Um, But I promise there are many other parents like, this is just a thing. But it's not just the parents. There's a lot of teen. right? Being a teenager means you're laying in bed at night thinking, I don't know what to do with my parents. They're such fools. So often in life, we have no idea what we're supposed to do. How to deal with the situation we're in. We get paralyzed. And we can't figure it out. What I'm saying is that there is this connection between suffering and confusion. There's this connection between going through something that's difficult, like losing your job or facing unrelenting temptations. There's a connection between trials and confusion. And we see this connection all through the Bible. There's this book of the Bible called Job. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's spelled job. But Christians, we call it Job. I don't know why. That's what we do. But there's Job. And life is great for Job until life isn't as these things happen. And things get really bad. And normally Job's wife and friends are helpful. But when things get really bad for him, they're not helpful anymore. Their advice just doesn't work. Suffering, stress, trials, they have this ability to make all of the advice of your friends ridiculous. And if you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. You know how suffering can remove all of the familiar landmarks and all of the compass points that usually help you figure things out. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes. And the lead character in it is this guy, his name in Hebrew, the book was written in Hebrew originally, his name is Koheleth. And the whole book focuses on a season of intense suffering in Koheleth's life. And sure enough, for him, like for Job, like for me, like for many of you, things that normally help him in life are no longer helpful. There's this period of life where all of the things he normally uses to figure stuff out, they're not there anymore. And for Koheleth, 
the key thing he normally uses is his brain. Because he's one of the smartest dudes in the Bible. He's one of the smartest characters in his whole community. But he goes through a time of suffering where his powerful intellect that he always is able to depend on is no longer helpful. We see this connection between suffering and confusion all over the Bible. One last example. Psalm 25. David. He, he, he's wrestling with an overwhelming opposition from enemies. And on top of that, he's experiencing profound guilt because of his own sin. And in the midst of that stress, where he's got enemies that are after him and they're opposing him, and he's also got a lot of guilt because he's done something really bad. In the midst of all that, listen to his prayer. This is Psalm 25. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. Teach me. See, there's David in a moment of suffering, partly of his own doing, partly not, and he can't figure out what to do. And in that moment, he asks God to teach him. Now, that's exactly what James is showing us in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He's saying that in the moments of suffering, when you don't know what to do, notice what he says. James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. It's that simple. If life is difficult, if you're in a situation and you don't know what to do, you don't have to prove yourself. Now is not the time to show God you've been paying attention in class, you've got it figured out, and you know exactly what to do. It's okay in the moments of suffering, when you're confused, to need guidance. Teenagers, when you don't know what to do about your parents, because they don't know what to do about you, that's okay. You're not supposed to know what to do. College students... It's okay that you can't figure out your next steps right now. God is teaching us that there are times in the Christian life when you need wisdom and you don't have it. And that's okay. And that's why God tells us here to ask him for it. We're supposed to feel the need for his guidance. And in those moments, it's healthy to realize we don't know what to do. And when that happens, to know we're not letting God down. In fact, as is so often the case with prayer, in those moments we find God is far more willing to answer our prayer typically than we are to ask him for something. Now notice the rest of James chapter 1. Notice the rest of verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all Without reproach. Three things here. This is what it means to have God as a father. It means three things. First of all, he's generous. Notice, he gives generously. God is not tight-fisted with his wisdom. Now, I know some of you grew up with a stingy father. But that's not God. It's not that... God is father means God is like your dad. It means your dad, whenever he was 
the best he could ever be, and it was awesome, that was a slight indicator of God. God is not a stingy father. He's not stingy. He's not cautious. And he's not even prudent or calm or measured with his wisdom. He is wonderfully generous. He delights to lavish it on those who ask for it. Secondly, we're told that he's not only generous, but he's generous to everyone. He doesn't only give his wisdom to a few privileged Christians. He doesn't wait until you've achieved platinum status in the Christian mileage club. God is not like some airline perk where, you know, when you get enough reps in and you fly enough miles and you pay enough tithe, then suddenly you get the good seats, then suddenly you get the good wisdom. That's not how God is. If you belong to God, his wisdom, all of his wisdom is for you. Third, it says not only... God gives generously, number one, and number two, to everyone. But it says, without reproach, without finding fault. So you see, when you don't know what to do, God's not going to say, chump, stupid. Why haven't you been paying attention? You should have learned this. Here's wisdom, but I'm going to lecture you along the way. Ask God for wisdom, and when you do that, When you come to our Father asking for wisdom because you don't know what to do, He is not going to shake His head and reprimand you for not knowing what to do. He's not going to take that moment to say, you've really messed your life up. Come on. Don't you know by now how to handle this? No. He's not going to do that. He's going to give you wisdom without reproach. So that's James chapter 1 verse 5. That's how God gives wisdom when you need it and you ask for it. Number one, he will give it generously. Number two, he will give it to everyone. And number three, there's not going to be a lecture involved. He's not going to find fault. Now, I want us to stop here for just a minute and reflect on something. These three things about God responding to us when we need wisdom and ask for it. These three things about God, these are at the very center of your relationship with God all of the time. Think about this. Number one, this idea that God is generous with his wisdom. But it's not only his wisdom he's generous with. When you first learn to believe the gospel, you realize how generous God is with his love. And his mercy and his grace. You learn that he's generous. So generous that he gave no less than his only son. Right? The most famous verse in the Bible. John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And as you learn to believe the gospel that God is so generous that he gave his one and only son as you learn that about God it should give you great confidence in continuing to come to this God with requests Romans chapter 8 verse 32 talking about God says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with his son graciously give us all things Look, 
God's generosity does not dry up when you become a Christian. It continues to flow inexhaustibly into our lives. Number two, remember God is generous. Number two, God is generous to everyone. When you first learn to believe the gospel, that's something you discover. When you believe the gospel, you come to see something of your own sin and just how far you've wandered from God. And still, he is willing to give so freely, even to someone like me and you, people who are so flawed and so warped as we are. There really is no limit to who he will give his grace to. And being a Christian is learning to think, if he can be gracious to me, then no one is beyond his reach. And, and, and think about the third thing. Remember, God is gracious, generous. God is generous to everyone. And remember the third thing, God is generous without finding fault. That's the gospel. We are given what we do not deserve. While the very faults that should disqualify us from God and his love and his kingdom, while those very faults are wiped away from us. Through Christ, we are presented faultless and blameless in his presence. When you learn to believe in the gospel, this is the God you discover. And that is the same God available to parents of teenagers and teenagers with parents and college students with an un, an, a confused future. This same God is there and he treats his wisdom the same way he treats his salvation and his mercy and his grace. When you believe the gospel, you discover this God. Why should we think he changes? Christian, you belong to God. He longs to help you. He is utterly sincere in his desire to give you wisdom when you don't know what to do. He has become no less giving when you need his wisdom than he was when you needed his salvation. When you are suffering and confused, go to God. All right. God is generous. When you're in a difficult situation and you need wisdom, just ask God. Don't be passive. Don't just fret and worry. Turn to him, pray, actually ask him. That's James chapter 1 verse 5. We love it. And then we get to verse 6. And it's a bit of a shock. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I mean, phooey, right? Why, why did six have to go and screw up verse five? Does this mean that those of us who struggle with parts of the Bible, eh, we're in trouble. We don't get wisdom. Does this mean that those who struggle to believe in God can never have confidence that God will help them when they don't know what to do? Does this mean that the skeptical believer is doomed? That those of us who ask uncomfortable questions about the claims of Christianity, that know all evidence is resistible and all arguments leak, does it mean that those of us who know that the Christians who um, are absolutely confident are just not us? 
Does this mean that the Christians who carry around their own inner atheist are in trouble? No, it doesn't mean that. Remember, always remember, it is not a contradiction to be a skeptical believer. Always remember, that is the everyday reality for many Christians today. And that's okay with God. And that's not what James is talking about. And we know that's not what James is talking about because of the way he unpacks this idea of doubt. You see, the problem with this right here is that doubt means one thing today in our scientific world. But in this passage, just read the passage. He's talking about something else. He's talking about this double-mindedness. He's talking about a person who has split loyalties. He's talking about the person who's two-faced. If James was writing today, that's the way he would have said it. But when you pray, don't be two-faced. I mean, you would say the same thing to your friend. If your friend comes to you asking you for help, but they're always backstabbing you, you would say, why are you asking me for help when you're so two-faced? That's the issue he's dealing with here. He's dealing with this idea of those who need wisdom, they want wisdom, they ask God for wisdom, but you've got one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in the world. You don't believe that God's ways will necessarily and always be the best ways. You're trying to live in two places at once. You're trying to live in two directions at once. Christianity is pulling you one way and the world is pulling you in another way and you're trying to do both. In the book of James, when he uses the word doubt, he's not talking about spiritual questions or struggling to understand the ways of God or wrestling with parts of the Bible that are difficult for you in this moment in your culture. No, that's the way we use the word doubt today. And while we don't have time to deal with those kinds of doubts, and that's a really important issue, I'll just say this. That kind of doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is the companion of faith. For James, he's using the word doubt to talk about two-faced. He's talking about half-hearted commitment to God. He's talking about having a split allegiance, being the kind of person who does not love God with your whole heart. And if that's the case for you, you know what he says is true. You're unstable. You're not grounded. You see, faith is about trust. It means you trust God and you let trusting God shape your entire relationship with God. It's time to stop being double-minded, to stop saying you believe in God, but living as if you don't. Live like you trust God. Respond to God's love with your whole heart, with a single-minded devotion and loyalty. When you come to God, not as a false friend, not as a two-faced child, friend of God, but when you come to Him in that kind of way and you ask Him for wisdom, He's going to give it to you. Now, one last thing. If you ask God, trusting in God to give you wisdom, he will do it. 
But that does not mean you will feel it. It doesn't mean you will feel wise. James is not saying that the moment we come to God earnestly seeking his wisdom and guidance, we will experience a sudden flash of insight and feel as though we know exactly what we need to do. I've been reading this book of the Bible for 40 years. I've been taught to pray this my whole life. I've been doing this for so long. And I can tell you that is not how it works. So many times, I I have not known what to do. So I've prayed for wisdom in the heat of a confusing situation. And hardly ever did I say amen and feel wiser. The situation remained just as confusing after I prayed as it did before I prayed. And yet, this is a promise. And God keeps his promises That's really true. He does. And God answered my prayer. What I'm talking about is the difference between receiving wisdom and feeling wise. Very often, you will face a difficult and confusing situation. And you remember this passage because you've memorized it. I hope you memorize it. This passage was written to be memorized. And you remember this passage. And so you suddenly realized you've spent the last three days worrying and not once have you asked God to give you wisdom and you catch yourself and you say, oh, wait a minute. And then you offer that simple prayer and you say, God, I need your clarity and your wisdom and your guidance. And he will give it to you. And very often you will not feel it. When we ask for wisdom, we trust God's way is always the best way. We know we need God to give us guidance. And God's wisdom will direct us in the decision we go on to make. And we may not feel confident when we make the decision. But you can choose to be confident that God keeps his word. And he will protect you from folly. Whether or not you feel or perceive it at the time, God will have given you wisdom. So remember, remember this, the proper response to our current daily experience of bad news is to petition the God of good news for wisdom. 